Is it okay to go ahead or? Yeah, good. Hopefully you can all hear me. Um, <clears throat> well, I'd like to read a passage from 1 Timothy to you today. So it's 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through verse 20. 1 Timothy 1, verse 12 through uh, verse 20. So this is what it says. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. Timothy, my son, I am giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by recalling them, you may fight the battle well, holding on to the faith and a good, or holding on to faith rather, and a good conscience, which some have rejected and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to the faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught to blaspheme. Well, um, Friday was uh, VE Day or Victory in Europe Day. And I guess this weekend there's been some um, celebrations of the victory that was won in Europe. Um, uh, I don't know how many of us watched the movie last night, The Darkest Hour by... Uh, about the life of Winston Churchill. Maybe some of us did. Uh, not too many of you nodding, so not even sure if you're out there, but I think you might be. <laughs> so anyway, what Paul does in this passage is he uh, encourages Timothy to fight the good fight of the gospel. Um, we sometimes sing songs like, Stand up, stand up for Jesus, ye soldiers of the cross. Uh, or, or, or we might sing, um, be thou my battle shield and sword for the fight. And that's the kind of tone of this passage that Paul is writing uh, to his young Lieutenant Timothy. Well, it seems that Paul was imprisoned. Uh, you probably know this from the end of the book of Acts. So Paul was imprisoned in Rome from an, around AD 60 to around AD 62. And it's generally believed that he was then released for and, and, and traveled around for about five years after he was released from his imprisonment in Rome. And he traveled with Timothy and Titus in the eastern part of the empire. And we know for a fact that he went to Crete and uh, he was working with the church that had been planted there. It would appear it was already in existence. And Timothy and Titus and Paul spent some time trying to build up the church on the island of Crete. 
some opposition arose on Crete, and so Paul and Timothy left, but Paul left Titus to continue to pastor the church or to help this fledgling church and fix out some of the problems that were uh, in existence there. Now, from there, uh, Paul was heading to Greece or to Macedonia, um, and on his way, he stopped off at Ephesus. And in Ephesus, this is a church that he had spent three years uh, planting and nurturing. So uh, it's a church that was close to his heart. He spent more time in Ephesus than he spent in any other place. On his way to Greece, he stopped off at Ephesus. And there he encountered or discovered that false teaching had crept into the church. Now, the exact nature of the false teaching is really uh, difficult to figure out, um, but it seems that Paul decided to continue his journey and he left Timothy to fix it out. And what Timothy had to fix out was that what was happening in the church in Ephesus is that there were teachers who were, uh, who were within the church uh, maybe even elders, and what they were doing was they were focusing on the fringes of the Christian message, and that resulted in all kinds of um, myths and genealogies and speculation, and somehow the main thing was no longer the main thing in the church at Ephesus. Somehow they had lost their way, and, and uh, they were no longer holding on to the truth of the gospel and the clarity of scripture. We sometimes see that in college. When students come, we assign them a passage to preach in preaching class, and they'll maybe take one tiny word from that passage, and they'll link it with something in the depths of the Old Testament, and then somewhere else in the New Testament, and they'll build a whole sermon on one word, which is fine. But somehow the message of the original writer in that passage gets lost. And that's a bit like what was happening in the church at Ephesus. Somehow the main thing was no longer the main thing. They were speculating, they were lost in myths and uh, genealogies and working out genealogies and somehow they had missed the gospel. And so Paul is writing to Timothy and telling him that he needs to fight the good fight and he needs to stand up for the gospel. And if, you, if, we, had, if we had read the first uh, 11 verses you would have seen that he also picks up on the issue of the law. There seems to have been some problem with the law, probably not the same problem that was experienced in the church at Galatia, but they were not using the law properly. And they were using the law as something intriguing and something to create speculation. But the law was never given to transform lives. The gospel is what was given to transform lives. And it's the gospel that's been entrusted to Paul. And it's the gospel for which Timothy must stand and fight for. Now, I think it's quite something that a church that was planted by Paul and a church in which he spent three years had lost its grip on the gospel within a generation. I, I think that's staggering. And uh, Paul, of course, is writing First Timothy to Timothy, whom he has left behind in Ephesus to fix out these problems. Now, you might think to yourself, well, I, I'm not sure that's such a big problem today. But, you know, one of the things that really struck me when I came back from uh, London in 2013 to Scotland, I remember one day walking along Union Street in Aberdeen, 
and just counting the closed churches. It was staggering to me. Churches that had once been thriving places of worship where God's people congregated and uh, out of which they witnessed. And uh, now they're turned into bars and pubs and nightclubs. And, you know, part of me asked, Edinburgh is full of churches like that. We go to a pizza express uh, in round Holy Corner in the city sometimes because we get free Tesco vouchers to go there. So we sometimes go there. And uh, it, it was used to be a church. And uh, now it's a pizza express. And you say to yourself, well, what happened? Why did all of these churches close? And I don't have a definitive answer, but I think somewhere in the mix of the answer is the fact that these churches lost their grip of the gospel. And they were no longer gospel-bearing churches. And if there's no gospel, then a church will inevitably die because it's the gospel that gives life. So this is a serious problem, and Paul has left Timothy to fix it out. Now, in this passage, he, uh, there are four things that I want to try and pick up, and I'll be as quick as I can. Uh, there is an illustration of the gospel from Paul's own personal life. There is, secondly, an affirmation of the gospel as he gives Timothy one of these trustworthy sayings, and there are five of them in the pastoral epistles. And then there's an exaltation which is focused on the goodness of God in the gospel. He just erupts in praise. And then finally, there is some instruction or exhortation right at the end of the chapter. So uh, we'll begin by looking at just the illustration. So verses 12 to 17, Paul really uh, takes the lid off his heart, as it were, and gives us a little glimpse of how he feels, what his emotions are, and, and what, what's going on. Uh, beneath the surface, describes himself as someone who has been appointed to the Lord's service. He's overwhelmed by that fact that God has entrusted him, strengthened him, equipped him uh, to work in the work of the gospel, church planting all over the first century world. I, I find it interesting that he describes himself as being appointed to service. He doesn't say that he's been appointed to leadership, although he was a leader leader among the apostles, leader of a missionary team, but he doesn't describe himself as a leader. He describes himself first and foremost as having been appointed to service because those who are called into Christian work, that is what they are. They are not professionals. First and foremost, they are servants of the Lord. And Paul is making that point in his initial uh, comments to Timothy. So in talking about this gospel that's been entrusted to him, he then begins to talk about his past. And he says, I used to be a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man. That's what I used to be. Blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man. Now, sometimes we're involved in interviewing students. And, you know, usually we begin by saying, tell us a little bit about your story. I don't think any of them have started and said, I was a blasphemer a persecutor of the church, and a violent person. I, I can almost see the applications panel, interview panel around the table if, if one of them did say that. I, I, I can see saying, well, that's interesting. Where do you go from there? But that's what Paul does. He, he describes his past just openly and honestly. And of course, this was not an exaggeration. Uh, this was exactly him before when he was in, in Acts chapter 26, verses 9 to 11, when he was defending himself uh, after he had been arrested in Jerusalem and he was in Caesarea Maritima and he was defending himself 
uh, before King Herod or Herod Agrippa. He said this, he said, many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them, that's Christians, punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was obsessed with persecuting them and I even hunted them down to foreign cities. Acts chapter 9 verse 1 says that he was breathing out murderous threats against the church. Threats and the slaughter of the saints had become his breath. He was like a war horse. He just reveled in blood and gore and the smell of battle as he pursued Christians and persecuted them. That was his past. He was a bully boy that ravaged the church. So that's why he wants Timothy to hold on to the gospel, because the gospel is what has transformed him from that to what he is now. We all have a past, don't you? I, I, don't we? I, I have a past. You, you have a past. And maybe we think because of our past, we could never become a Christian. We're not like the nice people that attend church. Well, let me blow the cover of all the nice people that attend church. All of them have got a past. All of them are broken. All of them are sinful. And the God that transformed the Apostle Paul also has transformed them and can transform you. Now, what about his transformation? What, what changed him then? He says in verse 13, I was shown mercy. Now, mercy is God's help for the helpless. And then in verse 14, he says, the grace of the Lord was poured out on me abundantly. And we, of course, know the story in Acts chapter 9. He was helpless, helplessly blind until God opened his eyes um, and uh, stopped him in his, in his murderous tracks. And uh, God's forgiving, cleansing grace washed over his past and he became a new creation in Christ. And the point that he makes is that the grace of God had washed over him in abundance. He actually kind of makes up a word here. Um, abundance has got a prefix to it, called, a Greek prefix called hooper. And it's to, it's to create this sense of intensity. He wants us to picture the grace of God as a river bursting its banks or the waters flowing over the Niagara Falls. It just washed over him and, and cleansed his past. And as a result, he became a new creature in Christ. And he says in verse 13, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. Now, he's not trying to lessen his guilt. He's not trying to absolve himself when he says, I acted in ignorance and unbelief. He's not trying to his past and saying, well, it wasn't really that bad. He's just stating a fact. He thought Christians were misguided fools that threatened his beloved Judaism. And he believed it was the right thing to oppose them. So he opposed them with every fiber of his being. And, and I'm not sure why he mentions this. Um, Jesus said that, that, that this would happen. The time is coming John 16, 1 and 2, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think that they are offering a service to God. I'm not sure why he mentions this issue of his ignorance. Now, in, in the Old Testament, there is a distinction between willful sins and sins uh, that are unintentional. And like of Numbers 15 lists a whole lot of sacrifices for sins that are unintentional. But I think the bottom line is 
that Paul wants us to see that he did not sin against the full light of the gospel. He was blind. He genuinely thought that these Christians were heretics, and that's why he opposed them. He was not sinning against, willfully sinning against the gospel with his eyes open, spiritually open, if that makes sense. And I think that he is uh, contrasting himself with uh, Hymenaeus and Alexander at the end of this passage, who seem to sit, have sinned against their conscience. Well, Paul's not doing that. Now, he also says uh, that he is now full of faith and love. Full of faith. He knows who Jesus is. He knows what Jesus did on the cross. And he's trusting in that with all that he has. Uh, he, he's full of faith. And, and he says, I'm full of love. Full of love for Christ. And he's full of love for the church that he once trampled over and persecuted. So there's been a complete transformation in the Apostle Paul. That's why he's in love with the gospel. That's why he wants Timothy to fight for the gospel, because the gospel is what has transformed him. And the gospel is the only thing that can ultimately transform people's lives. Now, some people think you need to be of a certain kind of disposition before the gospel or Christianity will work for you. But that's not true. The Bible is full of examples of people who were transformed by the gospel or by the good news of Jesus. A woman at the well had five husbands, was now living with someone, and somehow Jesus broke into her life. Zacchaeus spent his life ripping people off. Jesus went home with him, transformed his life. A man living in a graveyard spent most of his life cutting himself, self-harming. Jesus meets him one day and completely transforms his life. You see, there is no blueprint all of us have a past, and the message of the gospel and the message of Paul is, if I can be transformed by the gospel, then anyone can. Well, here's the second thing. It's not just an illustration. There's an affirmation. He says in verse 15, here's a trustworthy saying <clears throat> that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Now, this is the first of five trustworthy sayings that are found in the pastoral epistles. Sometimes people say things to you, theological things, and you think to yourself, yeah, I'm not sure about that. I need to think a bit more about that. You're just a question mark in your head. Well, this is not one of those statements. This is a statement that needs no question mark. The primary function or the primary purpose of Jesus coming into this world was to save sinners. And, uh, this is a staggering statement from a Pharisee. See, the Pharisees would never have believed that Jesus would have wanted anything to do with sinners. They would have thought that the Messiah, when he came, would mix with the likes of them, holy people, religious people, law-keeping people. But this Pharisee has been transformed in his thinking that he has come to the place now where he, he realizes the primary purpose of Jesus coming into the world was to be the friend of sinners. And that's a good news if, if, if you know that you're a sinner. It's great news for someone like me because I need someone to help me with my sin. And, uh, and then Paul makes this staggering statement, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Now that's a staggering statement, isn't it? I am the chief of sinners. The, the Greek word carries the sense of I am the first or I am the foremost. I am the worst sinner of all. 
Jesus Christ came in to save me, the worst sinner of all. Now, we might think that's a bit of an overstatement, isn't it? What about and the extermination of, what was it, three million Jews, or however many Jews it was? What even about King Herod, who put all the baby boys to death around Bethlehem? Paul, how can you describe yourself as the chief of sinners? Well, I don't think it is an overstatement. Um, and I, I think it's worth pointing out also that it's emphatically in the present tense. It's not, I used to be the worst of sinners. It's, I am the worst of sinners. Now, at this point in my life, I am the worst of sinners. Because when the Holy Spirit comes uh, to live in your heart, I, I think it gives you an awareness of your own sinfulness and your own unworthiness. And uh, you might think, well, that's a bit morbid, isn't it? That, that you have this deep sense of your own sinfulness and your own unworthiness. But I think that's a good thing because it leaves you absolutely dependent on grace. And you realize it's not because of me that I'm a Christian. It's because of God's character and Christ's work on the cross. And that never changes. See, that's why in the gospel, God could never love me more than he loves me today because it's not based on me. It's based on him and based on the work that Christ did on the cross. And so Paul revels in the fact that Christ came into the world to save sinners and he feels like the worst sinner of all in his heart. He says, if I could take the lid off my heart and you could look inside, you would never listen to me. You would think with me that I am the worst of sinners, but Christ Jesus came into the world to save people like me. And then he tells us in verse 16 why he was converted. He said, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him. What, what Paul is saying in that verse is, listen, God did not look down from heaven and say, well, we need someone that can write half the New Testament. Let's find some bright boy who can help us with that and we'll start with him. Nor did God say, looking down from heaven, you know, we need someone that's kind of religious to see if this gospel thing will work for them. What God did with the Apostle Paul was he sat down with the worst of sinners and said, well, start here and this will be a testimony for all succeeding generations. This will be a testimony of what I can do in people's lives. And that is the message of this passage. If, if, if the chief of sinners can be converted, then there's hope for you, whoever you are, whatever your circumstances, whatever your past, what the gospel did in Paul's life, it can do in your life. Then thirdly, there's an exaltation. He says, he just bursts into praise. In, 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 in verse 17, he says, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, <clears throat> be glory and, or be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So he describes God as eternal. God is no beginning and no end. He describes him as immortal. God is imperishable, incorruptible. He will never exper experience death or decay. He describes him as invisible. God lives beyond the limits of every horizon. He describes him as the only God. A little girl at Sunday school was asked on one occasion, how many gods are there? And she said, there's only one God. And the Sunday school teacher says, well, why is there only one God? And the little girl thought for a minute and said, because there's only room for one God. 
And there is only room for one God like this. And Paul just erupts in praise. Actually, <clears throat> it's a great exercise if you're reading through the New Testament to go through the, 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 what we call the Pauline letters and look at the number of times that he's writing on a theological theme or some topic surrounding especially the gospel. And then he just stops and he just bursts into doxology and just bursts into praise. It's quite staggering the number of times that he does it. And here we can see that his heart is just filled with gratitude and praise and wonder at all that God has done for him. It's a bit like John Newton. Remember John Newton, drunken slave trader who sailed the seven seas, plying his trade, buying and selling human flesh. And uh, he was so hated by the crew on his ship that they left him in Western Africa on one occasion and sailed home without him. <clears throat> I hope it uh, doesn't happen to the captain of the ship that I'm looking at here. No, they've never left you in West, Western Africa. Good, good. Well, they left John Newton there. Such was their hatred for him. And one, but one night in the middle of a raging storm, sitting in the mast of a ship, God broke into his life. And he never stopped writing songs about it, about what God had done for him. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound has saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. And even now we still sing his songs. My chains are gone, I've been set free. And uh, that's exactly what's go going on with the Apostle Paul here. He is lost in wonder, love and praise. When he thinks about what he used to be and what he is now, having been transformed by God's grace. C.S. Lewis once wrote a book, book called Surprised by Joy. I, I would love to write a book, Overwhelmed by Grace. Overwhelmed by Grace. When I think about what I was and could have been and what God's grace has done in my life, it's quite incredible. Well, lastly, uh, and with this I'm finished, and I'm sorry I'm long-winded. I know it's hard to stay with people on Zoom and uh, listening to them on a screen, but... Here's the last thing. There's finally just an exhortation. I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies that were once made about you so that by recalling them, you may fight the battle well, holding on to faith and a good conscience. Just two quick things about that. First of all, the command, he is to fight the good fight. He is to fight the battle well. He is to stand up for the gospel. He is to remember the prophecies that were made about him when he was set apart for ministry. So when he was uh, set apart for ministry, Paul arrived in Lystra, his second missionary journey, decided to take Timothy with him from the church at Lystra. And there must have been some kind of commissioning service where they laid hands on him and people said things moved by the spirit about Timothy. And uh, Paul is reminding him here of, of what was said and he's asking him to go back in his mind to what was said there and he's asking him now to follow through. See, Timothy was younger than Paul. He must have been around 30 when Paul picked him up and Paul was probably in his late 50s. A lot younger than Paul. He, and, and Timothy was more prone to lean than he was to lead. And here Paul is encouraging him, listen, I've entrusted the gospel to you. I've left you in Ephesus now to fix this church out and to get them, to steer them away from myths, genealogies and speculation and back to the main thing. And I, I want you to strengthen yourself and fight the good fight. 
it's not easy to stand up for the gospel, is it? And stand out as a Christian. I was reading about Hugh Latimer uh, this last week, and uh, he was one of the better known English reformers. And he was called before King Henry VIII to preach. And uh, Hugh Latimer was a vivid, vibrant preacher and fearless in terms of proclaiming the truth. Anyhow, he offended the king. And uh, the king summoned him to come back the next week to preach another sermon and to apologize. So Hugh Latimer went back the following Sunday and he preached exactly the same sermon all over again. That's the kind of courage that Paul wants Timothy to have. And I think that's the kind of courage that Paul wants, God wants us to have amongst our families, in our work, amongst our work colleagues, in our neighborhoods, wants us to stand out. Not, we could say stand up, but, but more than stand up, he wants us to stand out for the gospel. And finally, I want you to notice that he's to do it, there's a concern, he's to do it full of faith and with a good conscience. So he's not to abandon the faith, he's to hold on by faith. He's to cling to the cross and he's to carry out his ministry with a good conscience. He's to keep short records with the Lord. See, it would have been easy for Timothy to harbor unforgiveness as these people in the church at Ephesus, Ephesus, the enemies of the gospel, made his life an absolute misery. Really, really easy for him to have harbored unforgiveness. But he must keep a clean conscience. He must think over the way he has behaved. And if he has done wrong, if he has reacted wrong, he must pray for the forgiveness and the fresh cleansing of the blood of Christ, which purifies us from all sin. He, he must do that. And he must be guided by his conscience. He mustn't do anything or react in any way that his conscience would tell him is wrong. So Paul is saying to him, you must stand up for the gospel, but you must do it with a good conscience, a clear conscience. And that, that's good advice for us as Christians, isn't it? Uh, do we keep our conscience clean in, in the way that we live, uh, the way that we interact, particularly during lockdown with our families? Are, is our conscience clear? And if it's not, do we go back and apologize to the Lord and uh, claim his forgiveness again? And uh, are we keeping in step with our conscience? Um, it's, it, that's what uh, Paul is asking uh, Timothy to do. Unlike Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom he mentions at the end of this passage, they must have sinned against their conscience. And Paul actually had to excommunicate them or put them out of the church uh, because they had sinned somewhere along the line against their conscience. So I want to encourage you uh, as I close just to maintain a, a clear conscience. So there it is. Timothy is to make sure that the main thing is the main thing. Because if we lose the gospel, then the church loses its source of life. And uh, I hope and pray that you'll uh, keep a grip of the gospel. And I hope that you'll never cease to be amazed and filled with gratitude at all that God has done for you as an individual if you are a Christian. Think about what you were and where you could have been and what you are now for full of grace and full of faith and full of love. How good has God been to us? Well, I'm going to hand over to Graham now to sing, I think, our closing praise or whatever uh, format the service will take from now.